Hi, my name is Yifan Chen. I'm a uh, professor of uh, biochemistry and biophysics at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm also an investigator of uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Today, I'm going to give you a very brief introduction about the single particle cloud EM. This by no means is a, uh, a comprehensive uh, introduction. For more uh, comprehensive introduction about the electron microscopy or about a cloud EM, or you can find other more comprehensive material to read and watch. Now, here, showing on the left, is a picture of a uh, electron microscope, and which is the one that we are still in use in our laboratory. Also, this is not the, the latest uh, state-of-the-art microscope, but it's still the one that is giving us the um, very best results. And on the right, it's a schematic drawing shows that the, how the electron beam is moving through the electron column. And on the top is an electron gun, then it passes through the condensed lens and the objective lens, aperture lens, and then the shooting on the specimen, then uh, through the projection lens and the media lens, that uh, for finally forming an image on the, on the viewing screen or recorded in the, in the camera here. Now, to explain uh, uh, electron microscope, one can go back to the um, wave particle duality of uh, moving electrons. And this can be um, um, described by the de Broglie's hypothesis, which um, one can view a view uh, moving electrons as either as a particle or as a wave function. As a wave, it can be described by the wavelengths and a particle as a, as a momentum. So the Broglie's hypothesis link these two things together. Now from this formula, one can easily calculate the wavelengths of an electron passes through accelerated with a certain uh, acceleration voltage and using this formula here. And to make it a little bit more complicated, one has to also take it into the consideration of a relativity, and which also shows that the mass of electron increases with the highest, once the speed increases, and as described by Einstein. Now, you, when taking those into the consideration, the wavelengths can be calculated by this formula. And showing here, in the bottom here, is that for an electron microscope operating at 120 kV, the wavelength is about 0.03 angstrom. For an instrument operating at 300 kV, then the wavelength is became shorter as about 0.02 angstrom. Now, if we compare electron with an X-ray, which is also commonly used for X-ray crystallography, there are some uh, major difference there. And as a particle, if we think both as a particle, that electron into, uh, interact with say, atoms share electrons and also the nucleus. And for X-ray, they only interact with the shared electron. Therefore, for X-ray crystallography, a density map is often called electron density map. But for EM, a density map, an EM density map should actually precisely be called a coulomb potential map, or we simply call it a density map for short. Now, also, uh, um, electron has a much larger uh, cross-section than X-ray. Therefore, electrons scatter much stronger than X-ray in a way that it also causing more severe radiation damage than X-ray can, can do. Now, as a wave, think uh, um, um, electron as a wave, or uh, X-ray as a wave, that electron is a charged particle. Therefore, it can be manipulated by the electromagnetic lens which can change the direction of electron beam so that the electron beam can be easily focused by using an electromagnetic lens, which is very hard to do by X-ray because it's not a charged particle. There's no uh, simple lens which can simply focus and manipulating 
by uh, um, um, for the X-ray. That's why it is easy to make an electron microscope, but it's very hard to make an X-ray microscope. Now, taking these are the simple uh, um, difference of the between X-ray and and, and the electron. Now, when they have a specimen um, put it into the electron microscope, what we're taking the picture of is a two-dimensional projection image of a three-dimensional object. And then the question then is, how do you reconstruct back a three-dimensional object from a two-dimensional projection image? Now, mathematically, this, the principle underlying such a reconstruction has been outlined long ago. And it should also be further demonstrated by David Rossi and Alan Krug in their early work back in 1968 to reconstruct a tobacco mosaic virus from two-dimensional projection images. Now, the principle can be illustrated as this so-called central section theorem. So in this theorem, what it says is that if you have a 3D object, a projection of this 3D object into a two-dimensional image will give you a view of this 3D object in certain specific view. If you do a free transform of these 2D projection images, what you give you is a 2D free transform, which is equivalent to the central section of a free transform directly calculated from 3D object. So in this way, if you have multiple views of the same object in different view, in two-dimensional projection image, that if you can calculate free transform, and if you know the relative orientation of all these views, then you can combine them together and reconstruct this one in free space in 3D. And then in this free reconstruction, it contains both amplitude and phase. Then a reverse free transform will give you back the 3D object. Now, this is a basic idea of a 3D reconstruction in a mathematical term. Now, that, um, we also talked about the uh, electron has a much stronger um, um, radio, uh, scattering than X-ray. This poses a couple of uh, challenges, particularly for biological specimens. The first one is that a high, uh, um, electron, uh, high scattering making us that it will have to put an electron beam into a high vacuum. That's why all the electron microscope, the electron beam is traveled inside the microscope column in a high vacuum. Then putting any biologic sample into the, uh, this uh, vacuum, the first thing you encounter is the dehydration. And the dehydration caused by high vacuum were causing the uh, uh, damaging to the integrity of the structure information, structures. The second thing is the uh, radiation damage. So also mentioned that the electron has a much stronger scattering than X-ray, so therefore it causes much severe radiation damage to biological sample than, uh, uh, than X-ray uh, beam usually does. Now, traditionally, classically, there's a number of different ways to prepare a biologic specimen for, uh, to be visualized in the electron microscope, including rotary shuttering and uh, um, various kind of staining, starting from positive stain to the negative stain. But all these technology uh, methods could not preserve biologic sample, to, uh, could not preserve the structural integrity of a biologic sample to the atomic resolution level. Therefore, these methods are not suitable for study biologic sample to the atomic resolution. How do we do that? This was first demonstrated by uh, um, Ken Taylor and Bob Glazer back in 1974. They demonstrated that using frozen hydration is a way to preserve biologic sample into a, uh, uh, to preserve the structure integrity to atomic resolution. The idea is that if you freeze a biologic sample, and then, that, therefore, the water molecule can be kept in a solid state, then you can put this sample into the electron microscope. 
and this uh, frozen hydration can preserve, uh, can uh, um, prevent dehydration. Shown here is a diffraction pattern of a catalyst crystal prepared by frozen hydration. And you can see that here, the diffraction spots goes to three angstrom, demonstrating that using this approach, one can actually preserve the st uh, structural integrity of a biological specimen to the atomic resolution level. And there's also a different way to preserve biologic sample in, uh, to prevent dehydration instead of um, frozen hydration. That is also using sugar embedding. Basically, the idea is using the sugar molecule to substitute the water molecule so that it can prevent the dehydration to maintain the structural integrity. And um, Nigel Arwen and Richard Henderson were the first one using this approach to study a, uh, a two-dimensional crystalline array. And then the, um, in this case, they started the bacterial adoption. The idea is all these bacterial adoption they form a two-dimensional uh, crystal. And uh, this two-dimensional crystal enable one to record both electron diffraction and also image. From the electron diffraction, one can obtain the information of amplitude for every diffraction spot. Now from the image, because this is calculated from image, that uh, this uh, uh, refraction spot give you uh, also the phase information. By combining the amplitude and the phase, and um, they can calculate the projection images, actually projection structures of this one in the 2D. Then combining with the tilting the specimen to different angle and then using this central section theorem, because you know how much precise you tilt your specimen, you know where this second image, the tilted image, where they come from. By combining all the tilted image, they were able to demonstrate that it is possible to actually obtain a 3D structure of a uh, um, um, 2D crystal. Uh, showing here is in uh, um, 3D structure reconstruction of a bacterial dopsin at around 7 angstrom resolution. Already the first time visualizing the transmembrane helices of an uh, integral membrane protein. This was uh, done in, uh, back in 1975. Now around the same time, Joachim Frank was the uh, uh, proposed idea that uh, what happened if we don't have a crystal? Can one Im imagine individual molecules? by then a computation using cross-correlation as a measure to align those images together with each other. Therefore, computationally averaging them together to generate a high-resolution picture. He outlined this, uh, uh, this idea in a paper published in 1975, and then he further demonstrated this one in a work in, uh, uh, in 1978 by showing that uh, you can indeed, by averaging individual molecules to get a high-resolution, uh, higher better structural information uh, uh, um, by averaging individual molecules, image of individual molecules. This was demonstrated by this uh, uh, glutamine uh, synthetase that he published in 1978. And then again, that back then he also proposed the idea of tilting the specimen to obtain the third dimension. And this was further demonstrated with a uh, E. coli uh, ribosome structure by the so-called random conical tilt approach. This was also the first time that using a single particle averaging approach and obtain a 3D structure of a 3D object. Now, this is a, a different approach of a, uh, still using negative stain EM, to, uh, however, to getting the 3D structure of molecules that without forming crystal. Then combining this single particle EM approach with the frozen hydration, that requires a different technique of prepared biologic sample. Now, this came from Jack Dubuisher. He invented this, he developed this method back in the early 1980s to uh, prepare biologic sample 
in the frozen individual biologic particle in the, in the frozen hydrated uh, uh, way. Now, showing here is a picture of acquisition virus embedded in a very thin layer of ice. The method he developed back then is still the one that we are using nowadays. Now, nowadays we're using this kind of EM grids, that, which is uh, a couple grids typically covered by a continuous carbon film. In this carbon film, they are regularly spaced the holes. The diameter of these holes are about two, uh, one to two micrometers. And the way nowadays we prepare biologic sample for the frozen hydrate sample is that we apply a, uh, a droplet of our uh, purified protein sample, typically about two micrometer, microliter, and uh, into the um, uh, into this uh, EM grease. Then we use a field paper to blot away most of the solution. The remaining liquid in the left in the grease, because of surface tension, will form this continuous uh, liquid layer across the uh, this holes. And then you rapidly plunge freeze in this one into the liquid ethane cooled by liquid nitrogen. The temperature of uh, liquid ethane is typically around uh, minus 200 degrees C. And that the cooling rate has to be very fast to about 1,000 to 10,000, sorry, about, from about 10,000 to 100,000 degrees C per second. In such a high cooling rate, then the specimen, the, the liquid will be frozen in its amorphous state without timing to, to crystallize it. And if this liquid became crystal, the crystal will crash the protein. Therefore, the high uh, uh, cooling rate is really required to prevent such a, uh, 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 crystallization. So the, the end is that what we call a vitreous ice, that what happens is that you have a, a, this a, uh, liquid forming across the main, uh, this uh, holes be frozen in a, uh, in a vitreous ice, and with a protein sample embedded in this thin layer of vitreous ice, in a freestanding state, and then in, a, in, a, in this uh, more or less in a native conformation. Then we take this one into electron microscope and then taking the image of it. And then if we look at the each individual particle images, this image can be defined by, uh, by three different, uh, um, by a number of geometric parameters, and uh, uh, particularly by a uh, um, three uh, parameters that, that defines the, it's a, a spatial orientation, and two other parameters defines XY positioning, and then the, um, the last one defines Z direction, which is typically referred to as a defocus. And if we can refine all these parameters as accurate as possible, then we were able to get in a higher high resolution structure. Now, to putting all this thing into a, a, a simple slice to show you how this actually works, that, uh, which I can show you here, here. This is a typical electron micrograph of a, um, a biologic sample embedded in the thin layer of feature size. In this case, the sample is a Akia 20S proteasome, which is a specimen that we, in our lab, that we use often as a, as a specimen for uh, our methodology development work. Now, we take many, many of such images, and in each images, we either computationally or visually identify individual particles, and as a circle here, and then we extract them out of this large micrograph and form a stack of all individual particle images. Then we align them together with each other, and then we, after alignment, then we can average them together and then to generate in a 3D reconstruction, just as I outlined in the early slides. Now, in this case, this is a 3D reconstruction of uh, Akia 20S proteasome to the resolution about uh, um, um, five to six angstrom resolution. 
At this resolution, one can visualize the um, secondary structural features, including alpha helices, beta sheets, and loops. However, at this resolution, we could not visualize the side chain density. In other words, that at this resolution is insufficient for us to build an atomic model de novo. In order to do that, one really needs to improve the resolution from this kind of sub-nanometer uh, Anstrom resolution to near atomic resolution level. And what limiting the resolution of single particle EM? This is not because of the electron microscope itself. The electron microscope actually has a very high resolution. Showing here is a single electron micrograph of a graphene. And uh, you can see that out of this single electron micrograph, that graphene uh, and the carbon atom is already resolved. So the typical electron microscope have a resolution down to almost two angstrom or even better. And it can resolve individual, electron, uh, individual atoms. Here, the reason that they can get this high resolution is because they use a very high electron dose, because this kind of specimen are not radiation sensitive. So therefore, we can get this high resolution. But for biologic sample, we could not take this similar approach using high electron dose to get in the, um, um, getting these high resolution uh, images. And uh, this was being a major limitation. And then uh, related to this one is actually how we're recording the image. In the biologic, in the cryo-EM, typically, traditionally, we're using either photographic film or CCD camera. Now, CCD camera give you instant digital uh, uh, images so that enable one to do this uh, on the fly, data correction or automated data correction. However, CCD camera has a problem. That a CCD camera does not detect the electron. It only detects the photon. In order to use CCD camera to record an electron micrograph, one have to put a thin layer of what we call a scintillator on top of the CCD camera. Now, this scintillator convert the electron signal from, uh, to photon so that the photon can be detected by the CCD camera. This conversion, however, has a problem which generally converted from a point event to a blob, because one electron generated many photons, became a converted from one point event to a blob. Now, this can deteriorate in the performance of the, of the camera. And uh, um, all the camera performance can be calculated by using something we call a quant uh, detectable quantum efficiency, DQE, curve, to describe here. Showing here, you can see that the red curve corresponding to the DQE of a typical uh, um, photographic film. And showing here on the green is a typical uh, DQE curve of a CCD camera, and which we used to use. And you can see that the DQE curve compared with the film of a CCD camera compared with film is a significantly poor. And for the CCD camera, at a high frequency, we can almost only able to get about 10% of signal. About 90% of signal are lost. This is a known problem, and then for many years, and using this type of image to record the, uh, using this type of camera to record the image, and then this is what we're typically getting here. Showing on the left is again an electron micrograph of a, uh, a frozen hydrated uh, Kia 20S proteasome, and showing on the right here is a free transform of this uh, image. And you can see there's a lot of rings surrounding the central beam, and this rings what we call a tone. Now, what we want is that we want to see this ring extended to as high resolution as possible. And this is a similar as X-ray crystallographers putting a crystal into electron into X-ray beam. The, how far this crystal can diffract give you the information about what resolution you can expect into getting from this structure. This is similar how far this tone ring goes, giving us certain expectation of what we can get out of this kind of image. 
And from this type of image, we were able to get in the structure I just showed you earlier. Now, how to improve that? And then the field already know this for years, and then that the, requires a new generation of camera that can direct detect this uh, um, electron signal. This is called the um, um, direct electron detection camera. Now, this type of camera became commercially available around 2011 and 2012. This type of camera no longer need a scintillator. It can direct detect the electron, convert the electron signal to the charge, which can be uh, uh, um, picked up by the camera. And then the, the charge distribution generated by each electron event is also very small, considerably small, compared with the, uh, um, um, this, uh, um, um, the point square function generated by the, by the uh, scintillator one converting from the electron signal to the photon. Now, if we, on the left here, shows again the blue curve is the DQE of a, uh, a camera that are um, um, developed by the Gaten called a K2 camera. Now, you can see that uh, this camera now at the, um, can be actually, uh, the performance of this camera is actually quite comparable or slightly better than photographic film. This is very good. Now we can have a camera that works as good as, as the photographic film, but also give you a digital image right away. But this is still not enough, right? So we wanted something even better. And then this comes from a, what we call the single electron counting. The idea is that this new generation of camera has a very high frame rate. For the K2 camera, it can operate at a, a total of 400 frames per second. And in such a high frame rate, in each individual frame, that electron events is very sparse. Now, if each, for each individual uh, uh, frame, if the, for every charge uh, events, every electron event still distributing a charge over several pixels, however, if there's no other events nearby, one can identify the individual events, not only identify where they are, but also can central it to a exactly pixel where this happens, or even to a quarter of pixel. So in this way, you gain two things. One is that your, your point, spread, point spread function became a single pixel size. The second is that you remove all the readout noise so that this became a more or less like a noiseless uh, camera. And now this made a huge impact to the, to the performance of the camera. You can see it's there showing in the red curve is the DQE curve of a same K2 camera but operating in the single electron counting mode. The DQE is significantly improved. This is a very big deal for the um, single particle cryo-EM or for the cryo-EM in general. Showing here again is an electron micrograph of a, a frozen hydrated uh, Archaea 20S proteasome. However, this image now is recorded by the uh, K2 camera operating in the electron counting mode. Showing on the right side here is the Fourier transform. You can see this all this wind now all the way from uh, um, goes to extended to the um, about three angstrom level. And this shows that this the information in this type of image now is retained to almost near atomic resolution level. And using this type of image now will hopefully enable us to get in the structure to much higher resolution. But this is also uh, not everything this camera brings us. As I mentioned, that uh, this camera actually can operate in a very high frame rate. Therefore, this type of camera now enable people to record an image as a movie instead of a single steady picture. And uh, the power of recording image as a movie was first demonstrated by Nico Grigorov lab, showing on the, right, on the left here is a, a uh, stack of a movie frame just adding together of a picture 
recorded from an acquisition virus. You can see that all the virus particles shows this kind of streaks across them. This is because the particle has a motion when the beam hit the specimen. And this is what, is what we know as a beam-induced image motion. And this has been known for many years, and this is a major factor that deteriorates the quality of the image. Now, Nico Gregorian's lab showed that using this movie, that one can actually potentially computationally correct for this motion, and generating a motion corrected image, which you can see here on the right, is much sharper than that. So uh, we also further want to extend this approach to a more general specimen instead of just the only virus, because virus is very large, and relatively easy to deal with it. But for the protein that we want to work on, that are often a very small size, and we want to have a different side, different approach, but using the same principle to correct for motion. Now, this is what we are doing now. So this showing here, the first image, is what we call a perfect image. The reason we call it a perfect image is because a free transform of this image shows tone into very high resolution to close to three angstrom. However, this type of image is very rare, and uh, on, out of a hundred images, we can probably get about a handful or less uh, image with such quality. The more typical images are shown here, but either looks almost the same. But if you look at Fourier transform, it shows that there is a severe cutoff. This is because of the image-induced motion, as I uh, uh, described earlier. Now we say uh, the way to overcome this problem is to record the image as a movie, also as I showed earlier. But here the problem is that in this each individual frame. The image is that we could not really see any signal. The image really has a relatively much poor signal-to-noise ratio. We cannot see any features by eye. And therefore, uh, we have to develop some algorithm to track the motion between every frame. Now, uh, um, with this uh, a, a, a algorithm that developed in our laboratory that uh, we are able to track the motion between every frame, then now we can track how every frame moves relative to another. With this information, we can computationally move every frame back to its origin and generating what we call a corrected image. And then in this corrected image, you can see that the, the, in the Fourier transform, all the information is completely restored to the high resolution. This is a very um, um, powerful and enable us to, um, to getting almost every image nowadays we're recording has uh, able to get in this kind of quality and for almost any type of sample. And, but also then here, that I also want to mention that in this uh, algorithm here, I just showed you here, every, for every frame, we're treating every individual frame as a rigid body. And uh, there is no, we did not consider the, any local motion. So out of, anyway, out of this kind of approach, we we're already able to get in the structure of Archaea 20S polarism from a, what I showed you earlier, about a 5 to 6 angstrom resolution to a 3.3 angstrom resolution. At this resolution, now we can start to see side chain densities. Showing on the left here is a, uh, um, is a uh, um, EM density map uh, determined to, uh, by this single particle cloud EM to about 3.3 angstrom resolution. Showing on the right, uh, right side here is the, same, the, the density map from X-ray structure of the same protein at about a similar resolution, 3.3, 3.4 angstrom resolution. You can see that the density map are very comparable. And then this demonstrating to us that if we can get in any structure to this level of resolution, we will be able to build the novel atomic model based on the sequence. This is very exciting. And, but also that we showed you earlier 
that the, when we treat the uh, image motion, we treat the entire uh, uh, micrograph as a one rigid body. But of course, this is not the case. And instead, that every actually local region, the particle motion has slightly difference. Then the, um, this was actually able to track down by the in tracking individual particle. And this work was demonstrated by Shaw's Rest Lab that they were able to show that actually in different locations, that particle moved differently by tracking individual particle, they could able to they would be able to um, to actually correct the local motion as well. So nowadays, that a lot of lab was in, uh, doing is that they combine the two methods together, including ourselves. That we first use the global motion uh, um, that the algorithm I described you early to crack to correct for the for the overall uh, um, global motion, then followed by tracking individual particle to crack for the local motion. Now this two process also works very well, but it, it's still kind of tedious. Can we actually do the things that all these two combine these two steps of motion correction together? Now this is the question we want to also tackle. And then this, the clue comes from early, still from Nico Gorigorov's work when he looked at the virus particle, the motion. He found that the virus particle motion is not only have lateral motion, but also have this rotation. The, or the way this particle rotates, suggesting that the ice film has actually uh, uh, a moving, there's an upwards moving Z direction motion of the ice film when the electron beam hit the specimen. Now, he proposed this idea that when the beam hit the sample, the specimen can move uh, upwards. Now, based on this idea, that we can think about that the, what actually what we see in the local motion is actually a projection of this 3D motion projecting into the image. When particularly, this is more obvious when specimen was slightly tilted. And now, Sean Zem from David Egerlab demonstrated, further demonstrated this one by showing that uh, uh, looking at the specimen, at a highly tilted specimen, you can see that almost all the motion is uh, uh, perpendicular to the tilted axis, really uh, supporting this idea of this uh, Z motion. Now, based on this idea that, uh, that uh, he thinks that uh, we can actually uh, uh, model the deformation of the ice, and then uh, 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 use this model to actually describing the motion of every point. So nowadays, that what we are doing now is to develop a new program called Motion Code 2. In this program, the, the way we're de uh, dealing with motion is that we first correct for the global motion, then we divide this entire image into different patches. And we can also determine the average motion of each patch. Then we can use this uh, patch to fit to, into this uh, a polynomial function, which is a, a function we use to describing the shape of this uh, deformation of the ice. Now, by, by modeling this, uh, uh, um, this uh, uh, the shape of the ice deformation, we were now able to crack the motion of every pixel in the image. Now, this, uh, basically, this approach combined both global motion and the local motion together to do all the correction uh, in the one step before we actually doing any further imaging process. Now, back to the same data set, we early on able to get a 3.3 angstrom resolution. Now, using the same data set, but using this uh, uh, motion correction, combining both the global and the local motion, we're further able to uh, improve the resolution of the same data set to almost two and a half angstrom resolution. This is a significant improvement, and it's coming from the uh, um, uh, combining this uh, global and local motion mostly, but also um, um, with uh, uh, using the later um, um, more advanced imaging process programs.
Now, with all these things together that I showed you today, is the major technology breakthrough in single particle cryogen, particularly facilitated by the camera technology, and then particularly with the motion uh, correction related to this new te camera technology. But of course, in the last few years, besides of this breakthrough, there are also major breakthrough was brought up by, this, by the software, particularly how do we classify image into different uh, groups, how do we generate a more homogeneous subset of particles from a more heterogeneous particle data set. And then this also greatly facilitating us to get into high resolution structure. And by putting all these things together, what CryoEM field experienced in the last few years was really a resolution revolution, as mentioned by uh, Vernon Kubra in the paper, outlined by, uh, by his paper published actually in 2014. Now, this was further also uh, um, and emphasized by, by another uh, feature article in Nature that's showing that uh, the, the, what's the impact of single particle cryogen to the entire structural biology community. Now, to put in all this together, we can now say that single particle cryogen really has become the method of choice when we started many challenging biological macromolecule structures. And then so this now concludes my talk today for, for this part. And, uh, and finally, I would uh, acknowledge people involved in the work. These are people uh, listed here are people from my current member of my lab and also former member. Also want to mention specifically that uh, the, all our methodology development work are in collaboration with the Viega lab. The Motion Code 2 program was developed by Sean Zen and uh, also that our work was supported by a number of funding agencies listed here. Finally, thank you for your attention.